<laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, Mr. Uh, Mike Rose, it's great to have you. How often in your life when you were faced with difficult situations, how often did you think back to your time in the Army, maybe specifically in Laos that we're going to talk about in a minute, but how often did you do a comparison and say, hey, nobody's dying here, nobody's hurt, everything's okay? Is that something that you did to help you deal with it, or did you have another method that you used? Well, my attitude is once it happens, whatever it is, you either, okay, write it off as a loss or you sit down and say, okay, how are we going to fix this? It doesn't help to dwell on the fact that whatever happened, happened, because it's already, that's history. Now you're dealing with the, the remnant of the disaster, whether it's a burnt building or a you know, a smash car or, um, you know, you lose your job, lose your job, uh, you know, whatever it is, you just got to sit down and figure out what you're going to do. And, and the other thing too, is don't, don't turn stuff down. You know, if you lose your job or something to that effect, you know, you gotta, you gotta get moved forward and you have obligations in a lot of cases, if you're married and have children, a lot of times, in my life, I've been in positions where I've taken jobs that I didn't really like and I hated every, just hated every day going to work. But it was a temporary measure because I needed the funds to take care of my wife and my children. Mm-hmm. So sometimes uh, you say, well, I'm not going to do that. Well, you know what? If you're any kind of, and I'm not using the term man, but if you're an adult and a responsible adult, you're going to do what's the best thing for you and other people. And a lot of times, if you're responsible for other human beings, you come second. They come first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's how I approach that. So Okay. So this interview has been in the works for me for many months. And, uh, you know, I told Troy about this for uh, November. I had a note slip to you when you went and spoke up at the school up on Montesano. Yeah. And that was from, I'd spoken at that school maybe the week prior, and uh, I wanted to come hear you, but I couldn't. And so I said, hey, can you give him this note and just say, hey, he would love to have you on his podcast? Because <laughs> I couldn't figure out how to contact you, but I knew you lived in town. I really just amazed by you know what, what, you, what you did and went through in, in, in Laos and during, that, during the war in Vietnam. And, and so I finally got a call from you, and I appreciate that. It took several months, and I know you get several requests. So, so thank you for for getting with me. Yeah, well, you know that was I remember it was it was it's I've been doing um, with Amber and that that school up on Mondoceto, the the homeschoolers. Mm-hmm. I've done I think two maybe three uh, Veterans Day things one day a week, go and talk to the older kids and and the younger ones. That's a, and what I normally do is after November eleventh time frame, I shut down doing anything uh, Medal of Honor or you know till after the first year because you've got you know you've got Thanksgiving and you got all the preps with the for the holidays and, mm-hmm. and to be honest with you it's. You need to get away from this stuff because I will tell you, Medal of Honor, uh, being retired military, being this or that is not my entire life. So there are a lot of things that I, and I, because I still got to cut grass. 
<laughs> I still got to mm-hmm. fix yeah. a, a broken faucet or whatever, or at least get it broke, fixed or whatever. <laughs> so I need time to myself periodically and time to my wife and, and my children. And, uh, and there have been times over the last six years uh, where it's because we lost our uh, son-in-law from too many deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, when that happened, my, my grandchildren were 8 and 11, so I've had, and they moved here to Huntsville because my daughter just needed the support. So I have had to step in yeah. to take over a lot of functions that a father would normally do as a grandfather. Like right now, and it has been an exciting time for me, uh, my grandson has, to show you what one of the reasons, he needs 50 hours of driving for this driving course. (laughs) I can tell you right now, after almost 30 hours, I'm not as nervous as I was. I was thinking about going, when I first started with him, going to a museum and getting one of those armored suits. You know, know, like bring your own airbag kind of deal. (laughs) I just went through that with my own son. My youngest just is getting his license. And I mean, uh, lots yeah. of hours. Uh, you know, you might want to stop before you hit the car in front of us. Kind of, <laughs> you know. I mean, so um, so there's those things that I do with my granddaughter and my, and you know, and I, so there are times that that's what my focus is. Yeah, sure. And my focus right now, primary focus in my life is to see that my both my grandchildren get through high school. The granddaughter graduates this month, and I've got two more years, and that those two goals have been completed. And that's my focus is really those to be available as much as possible for the mm-hmm. grandkids. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thank when goodness. you lose a father like they did, so well, they were young. Yeah, I mean, gosh, that's that's tough. And I. And in a sense, I don't think they'll ever, ever totally get over it. I really don't. I mean, you can tell when certain dates come through the year that where their minds are. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's get back on to... Well, they're probably keeping you young, too. So that's a good thing for both of y'all. <laughs> well, they're, <laughs> they're definitely cleaning out my... My blood vessels at times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, boy, I'd love to kill that boy. You know? <laughs> hey, Troy's got four kids. Two were moved out. Now, now all are back, including and then a bride, a uh, a wife is about to be back, right? And yeah, my, and my nephew. Oh, really? And okay. One thing I could tell you: it in this day of age, children do not disappear, go away. No, they don't. They, Unless you downsize to like a bedroom in a studio downtown, which I might do. Or, or there, there's no room here for you. Or move and don't leave a foreign address. <laughs> well, let's talk about Operation Tailwind. And first of all, okay, so would you would you tell us officially, you know, what your role was? You were a medic, but you, if you could just say you're you're a special forces, you're a medic, and then. What you knew about Operation Tailwind before you actually were part of it, or before you found out you were going to be involved? Okay, Max Sog ran from seventy-five to seventy-six. We went into Cambodia, Laos, and North Vietnam. And the Ho- our primary function was along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, 
and to do interdiction, set up ambushes as a part of an exploitation force. We also had a reconnaissance outfit that went in there to try to gather intelligence or prisoner snatches, whatever, and to get down pilots. Well, what I knew about Operation Tailwind in uh, end of August, 1st of September 1970 was like, I only was told what I needed to know. And, you know, and, and on, I, I'm not stupid because I knew where we operated, you know. But when your first sergeant <laughs> comes by and says, hey, doc, when you pack up all your medical stuff for this trip, make sure you, you double it <laughs> or triple it. When somebody says that to you, you go, hmm. Yeah. That is not an indicator that it, it's, we're not going to Central Park in New York City. So you were, where were you before you went? When, when he told you this, where were you physically? Physically? I was probably, I most likely, as I most likely with him, I probably was in the, our uh, dispensary. Like in what country? In Vietnam. Okay. Yeah, we, we housed in Kantum, launched out of Docto. Okay. All right, so you, you go to Laos. Did you have to sign anything that said, I will not talk about this? When I left, yeah. Okay. You know, and I will tell you this kind of interesting. President Trump was amazed that with all the people involved in Operation Tailwind, the 16 Americans on the ground and God knows how many staff and how many aviators, not a word was talked about, not a word was said for 30 years, yeah. 28 plus days, months, whatever. He was just astounded that that many people could keep a secret that long. Yeah. Well, how long were you supposed to keep a secret? Well, when I left, they, you know, you sign all this paperwork, and you know, and if you mention what you've been doing or whatever, whatever, uh, they're going to bury you under forty feet of concrete, you know, kind of deal. I mean, they had me convinced because, yeah. and it was a top secret organization, so we all had top secret clearance. We had the top secret clearance not for what we were doing, but where we were doing it. Yeah, because. No one was supposed to be... We weren't supposed to have troops in Laos, is that right? Well, my understanding is that when we were in Laos on September 11th through the 14th, President Nixon was on the national TV saying we had no boots on the ground in Laos, which was not true mm -hmm. because it's from early on the 11th of September to late afternoon on the 14th of September, I know where I was, and it was in Laos. What was the purpose? What was the goal of this mission? And how long was it supposed to be? <clears throat> well, it was supposed to be like a day or so. But the reason we went for is because we just couldn't get out of there. Uh, because the guys that on the other side, the other team, as my grand, my daughter used to say, your team, uh -huh. the other team uh, wouldn't let us aviation in. But the purpose was the CIA was running an operation north of Chavano, Laos, which is kind of halfway between Vietnam and Thailand. And this operation, by the way, had to be approved by the president himself and the ambassador to Laos. 
And they were running a, an operation against the North Vietnamese and the Path at Lao. And they weren't doing so well. So what they wanted was kind of like a demonstration south of Chavano. And Chavano is spelled C-H-A-V-A-N-E. And do not ask me why it's pronounced Chavano when it's spelled like Chavane or something. Yeah, okay. Don't know. It was, <laughs> probably, don't. It was probably French, and then they just said, ah, forget that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it started out as French, and you know how that stuff gets bastardized over the year. Mm -hmm. Like Louisville, Louisville. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, so they wanted to use an old term, a demonstration in the military sense. It's a false, to give them a false sense that this was the main focus of the, uh, to draw troops away from the CIA operation onto us so that that operation would succeed. Well, what you think happened is they thought that this was a major incursion by the U.S. into Laos. And they came at us with gangbusters. Was it from day one? Oh yeah, because they put us down all in a, in what we re think was a core level logistics center. They had wooden sidewalks, Class A phones. In fact, the phone rang while we were in there, right? Because they were out running around looking for us. And Cap McCarley, who later became a colonel, lieutenant colonel, he answered the phone. <laughs> Class A phone, and he said, Cap McCarley, 5th Special Forces, how may I help? And I heard him say that, and I said, oh, crap. Now, this is a now phone. there's no... Yeah, this Class is a... Like what you have in your house. Or you yeah, house. regular okay. home phone, you know, only... Uh -huh. I, I, I doubt if it was push button, it was probably dial, but... Uh -huh. <laughs> Who was on the other end? Some Vietnamese... <laughs> I don't know, NCO... Uh, so did that just blow? I mean, did oh, they? Oh, like, then they knew. But we we got out of there with Class A mail uh, intelligence. We had records on what troops had gone through and refitted through there, what weapons they had, who was in command, the whole team. Was it Vietnamese troops or who had gone? North through? Vietnamese. Okay. These wow. were regulars. Okay. In fact, uh, once we fought, we were fortunate in that that uh, time frame that. Most of who we fought were not trained as infantry because, uh, I mean, these guys were tough, but they were not right. What they're, you can tell when you see uh, non-infantry when you have to fight them as versus to when you fight regular infantry. Regular infantry, especially if they have a lot of experience, is tough to deal with. Mm. Ask the guys that invaded France in World War II mm -hmm. at Normandy. Mm. True. So what happened with y'all then after after the phone was answered? At it, some, how much later did did crap start going down? Oh, it's it. We started taking ground fire all the way when we crossed the border. I mean, it's we sound like we're in a popcorn machine. That's what it sounds like when on the Marine Corps uh, CH fifty threes when rounds hit the hull. It sounds like popcorn. Uh, the first, you know, that noise of the rounds hitting those um, Higgins boats and the saving prime round? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it sounds like. When, when we landed or got on the LZ, I was actually stepping over people because they had been hit. Fortunately, none of them were killed, but they what were. Kind of, who were these people? Where were they from? Mountain yards. Locals? Well, they were our troops. We trained them, but they were. They were. Um, Mountain Yards, part of the program. I mean, we they were trained as infantry, and they were good. 
we ran them through a basic training like you would in the states. Okay. Well, that's I guess that's what SF have all have. SF that's one of our training. functions yeah. is to create uh, regularly infantry type units out of guerrillas or civilians. Mm-hmm. That's one of the functions of special forces. That's why we get confused with rangers. We're, our job is we go in with a guerrilla situation or an insurgent, if we're helping the insurgents, to train them to be regular troops. Yeah. And then if we're helping a host country, then we train their troops how to be regular, to be able to deal with insurgencies. And But... The difference is, is we go with them when they actually go into. Uh, we train them and then go with them as advisors. And you're calling them mountain yards. They're mountain yards. That's the French term. I think the word, their real word, is uh, that really actually is more accurate is dagars. But they're not a homogeneous uh, group of people. They're they're Rade Jung. They're different. Because they spoke different languages. I can remember giving medical classes, first aid classes, and I would have two or three interpreters. And it's funny. I would say it in English. One of them would say it in French. Would then the others would say it in uh, their the two other three other languages. Uh-huh. So you'd you'd say something and you'd wait and you'd hear it. <laughs> Every time you heard it, it would it would be in a different language, but. That's the way it was, but it's amazing uh, that a lot of us could not speak to each other and understand each other, but how well we could communicate in that environment. Mm. So the North Vietnamese knew that they had worked with the Americans. Is that why? And so they... No, no. These are not North Vietnamese. The, the Who shot, who hurt them, and I'm talking who attacked them? The who ones that were on the ground. They were North Vietnamese regulars. Oh, Okay. Okay. They'd come down for North Vietnam. Okay. This is North Vietnam. These were regulars. I gotcha. All right. These were not uh, gorillas, if you would. These are regular, well-trained, well-equipped troops. Wow. And they are. They were. They gave as good as we. They got. And they were not. Uh, these guys are tough, hardened. They were good. I. I have no. I have a great amount of respect for them i mean i didn't like what they were mm-hmm. their cause don't get me wrong i thought you know we were there to maintain democracy supposedly in south vietnam but you cannot say that these guys were not courageous or party well trained mm-hmm. and they definitely believed in what they were doing yeah and the other thing that we found out over the years was they didn't want to be there anymore than we did yeah what was your specific role as a medic on this mission? Do you are you on the front lines, or are you or or what? Where are you at? I'm, well, if you're a company medic or a platoon medic, you're right there. When the mortars come in and the rockets come in and the small arms comes in, you're right there because so, your guys are get your your guys are getting hit and hurt. So your job is to. Your job is not to repair them. Your job is to keep them alive long enough to get them back to somebody who can start doing the repair and rehab. Mm-hmm. Or whatever. So at some point, had you did you make sure that all how many how many were on your team? There were sixteen Americans, counting myself, and one hundred and twenty mountain yards. Oh wow! Okay, 
And then what do you do as a medic? How many medics? Was it you and you were training someone? Just you. Wow. What do you do to prepare your teammates? Like, Do they all have to have a certain, some kits on them, some... Well, what I did is their left breast pocket. I made sure they carried certain things like extra morphine and whatever, and I made uh, everybody carried uh, one or two uh, IV, DSW, or uh, normal saline IV. Okay. Uh, I They carried bandages, extra bandages and stuff like that, and we went through all of it too. We went through a lot of bandages. You told them you owned their left pocket, left breast pocket or something. Yeah. Is that right? I told everybody, okay, this is what you're going to have in that left breast pocket. Because when I came up on somebody, right, I knew I could reach in that pocket and take out morphine or whatever I needed. I used their stuff on them. Okay. But at some point, you couldn't do that. No, because we ran out. When you have 70 wounded, and some of those guys are like split from their hip to their knee right down to the femur, and you've been carrying them. You carry, we, some of those guys we carried literally strapped to poles through the jungle. For, yeah, where did you get these poles? That, bamboo. It's bamboo. You strapped them to bamboo. Yeah, with a repelling rope and a poncho. Gosh. You, they look like you know. You ever see these hunters coming back with a with a, a deer moose or something, a moose yeah. or something, yeah, yeah or whatever deer. <laughs> I mean, it's all we could. You you didn't carry litters with you. you who yeah. want? And uh, the jungle in Laos is man, it's thick. I mean, it's so thick you couldn't see that from where I'm sitting to that door over there. You wouldn't even know the door was there. Hmm. So how were were they were the North Vietnamese coming after you and y'all were were you retreating or how how was this all no, playing out? There's no place to retreat okay, to. Good. All right. We were moving, and that's the one thing. See, historically, what we'd done on a exploitation forces, we'd go in and set up a perimeter, and then we would get the bad guys to come to us, and we would fight them. But the main purpose was be for the air force to come in and. Air support. Air support and nail them with air support primarily. Mm-hmm. But this time, uh, Cap McCarley, um, he uh, he knew that we couldn't do it because we're going to be 45 minutes from the Vietnamese border. So we're way out of uh, – in fact, we had to go to the Marine Corps for use their Cobras and use their uh, helicopters to bring us in because the Army helicopters – uh, the Hueys and the Army Cobras didn't have the range. In fact, we were almost closer to Thailand, and it was the furthest incursion that any U.S. forces had done during the Vietnam War. Wow. At what point? Oh, go ahead. So go I was going to say, we kept moving, and that's what saved our butt, was we kept moving, and a lot of times we would they would lose us. And then when we would bivouac at night and they found us, thank God for uh, Spectre or they would come in with that that one thirty with the yeah. twenty millimeter, uh-huh. uh huh. And it, I tell you that, it's really neat to see, but it's kind of creepy when you think about it. You get this solid red come down around you, but there's four of those twenty millimeters that you don't see because there's every fifth round was a, a 
Oh, getting old. Um, oh, come on, Rose. Tracer? Yeah, Tracer. That's okay, a, okay. That's what I'm looking for. That's that's the other thing. When, <laughs> sometimes your brain goes a little south <laughs> when, you're, when you're my age. Well, a lot of bullets going in the background. One of the things I need to emphasize, too, is 99% of the stuff that I know about Operation Tailwind, I have op- I've learned since 1998 when they opened up the, and declassified it because okay. I only knew what I needed to know to do my job. Was it heavily redacted? Uh, heavily redacted. <laughs> I didn't even get the page. <laughs> <laughs> I was not included in the email, as they say. <laughs> no, I mean, but that's, you know, you just, you knew what you needed to know to do your job and to support the people. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure Captain McCarley knew the whole nine yards, but he wasn't going to tell all of us. There was no need to. He was he was pretty hands-on, wasn't he? He was oh, yeah. heavily involved. I, and, let me tell you, I think that Captain McCarley since since the beginning of the U.S. military in 1775, was probably the finest company commander, infantry company commander this company has ever produced. You figure how many engagements we fought in that four days. And we only had three killed. I was able to keep everybody alive but three of them. But they were, those three were killed outright. They were, I mean, they were dead by the time they hit the mm. ground. Did you have a... I guess you had your own army equivalent of a combat controller or a JTAC. Is that what they were called then? That called Covey. The, Covey. That's what that's what it's called. Yeah, it was one of those Air Force planes. Most of them had a propeller in the back and a propeller back in the front, and then it had a pilot. And one of our guys from uh, one of our guys from CC Central was talking on the radio, and that's because he wasn't on the ground with you. No, oh. he was in the air. Okay, he was in the air twenty four seven above us. One would come in and one would leave. One would come in, one would leave. I mean, you couldn't, otherwise we were blind. But how did they know in the air where to drop the ordnance? I mean, because did they know, how did they know where you were? Uh, we marked things. Okay. A lot of times we use panels. Okay. Or McCarley would identify something and uh, they knew where we were. A lot of times, uh, they could see us on the ground. And that, I mean, they could see you from the air, but you know, somebody twenty feet away probably couldn't see us, but somebody from the air could probably. Yeah. And plus, the fact is, you know, if you're watching and you see gunfire, <laughs> crap going on, you pretty much know where something is. Yeah, yeah. It's not exactly their weapons are not exactly quiet. You know, we did not have a lot of silencers on our. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Did you did you sleep at all? Did you eat at all? Uh, I don't. You know, I don't remember eating at all. I remember drinking water, but I don't. Where did, how did y'all carry the water? Well, I carried a two and a half quart bladder on my chest, uh-huh. and a can one or one canteen and two canteens. One had brandy in it. <laughs> just You're a, not supposed to do that. But. Well, just trying to survive, huh? <laughs> Well, that was the, you know, sometimes you'd give a sip of brandy to a wounded or, you know, okay. hey, hey, Smith, you look like you're having a bad day here. Have a sip of this. Anesthetic. Yeah, it was, and I want to be perfectly clear, 
it was for medicinal purposes only. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Not to mention that it's probably breaking so many rules and regulations. That, you know. But you know what? I don't think any army at any time, somebody in your unit didn't have a canteen full of Yeah. <laughs> I, I really, I don't, I, I can't believe, you know, if you told me, oh, we had none in the, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is, is you know, McCarley knew I had it. And there is something I would say about McCarley and our first sergeant, Adair. Adair was, he was an interesting character. He walked around the whole time all this nonsense was going on until the last, oh, I'd say, hour with his rifle slung upside down on his shoulder, walking around, checking on us and what have you. And he would come by and he'd say, how you doing? He wasn't asking how Sergeant Rose, the medic, was doing. He was asking how Gary Michael Rose, the person, was doing. And McCarley would do that. How they found time with all the responsibilities and things they were doing. Because McCarley was constantly on the radio trying coordinating air assets and whatever. And uh, so, but they, they came around to check on us. And it, and it was a, you know... Probably at the time you didn't really think about it so much, but years later and you you think about it, it probably for myself personally it was kind of a you know morale booster, if you would. That's what I was wondering: is it was it for a way to them to somehow calm or comfort people a little bit? Yeah, to know that we we were a person and we weren't just some cog in a big machine, uh-huh. and that he really cared. And then he would ask, "Is there anything I can do to help?" Which you know, it's it's a nice gesture, but you know, it's like, yeah, how about four more medics? <laughs> but that ain't gonna happen, no how, you know. Did y'all run out of ammo? On the when we figured that after the crash, with all the last thirty-five of us that were on the ground, and we crashed, or we were shot down rather, but we did crash too. So you lost an engine. And we lost up. both engines. Wow. But what I'm saying is we think we had about 20 rounds between the 30-some of us. At well, the end. Oh, wow. I was giving my ammo away. Hmm. Well, is that because you were spending all your time treating? Yeah. You have in fact, time? my rifle spent most of its time on my back. It, actually, if I had it, if I was to go back and redo it, I would have asked it for a 45. Oh, only. Yeah, because the rifle became a nuisance for me. Uh, and, you know, really, if, if you remember that Sergeant Major in the movie, uh, we were soldiers. Middle Gibson. We were young and soldiers once, where the Sergeant Major said <laughs> he only had a forty five, and he said, if I need a rifle, there's going to be plenty of them laying around. Oh, gosh. You know, so, and it's true. Uh, because I only fired my weapon once, and then I think I fired s- something less than a maybe two magazines. And then right at the end when some people, when we were trying to get the last ship out with, some, with the rest of us on the ground, we had people go down. So I handed my rifle to uh, Pete Landham, and I went out and grabbed the wounded. And at that point, I had no weapon on me at all. Did you drag them oh, yeah. away? Is that what you did? Yeah, you pick them up. It's amazing how, with adrenaline, how how, how, how the things that you can move. Well, being a Green Beret, you already were 
physically you were in yeah i was in a lot shape. better shape than i am now yeah <laughs> but you're carrying what seemingly is dead weight right that's that's worse or if if they're not complying with the position you need them in that's a big difference too isn't it well that's but that's what you're you're the medic that's your responsibility is to get them to safety and I, and I know on the crash when we went to uh, pull the pilots, I went forward to pull the pilots out of that ship. Uh, was, it I, bur- was it burning at the time? Yeah. Was, mm. So I went forward, and I pulled them out, and I was dragging them back toward the opening. It was not a door. It was an opening. Because we know <laughs> the ship was upside down. So uh, I probably caused one or two of those pilots to spend an extra day or two in the hospital because I probably, in the process of trying to get them out of there so they wouldn't burn to death, I think I hurt them. But you you can't be concerned about that. Mm-hmm. That's like uh, like myself. I, had, I learned late, years later that I had all the ribs on my left side had remodeling vertically and horizontal and scarring in all my intercostal mes- muscles. Because it, on that crash, I, I must have smacked, I smacked that ground hard. And I even pulled, not totally away from it, but partially the ribs from the sternum. Because uh, they're scarring in there today. And, uh, but that was not the problem. <laughs> that, that, I was not concerned about that because uh, too much was going on that if we didn't react quick enough that people more people were going to die. Mm-hmm. So you... And I was fortunate to be thrown from the helicopter on the way down. How far did you fall, do you think? Well, one of the pilots estimated that uh, two of us were thrown from the helicopter probably somewhere between 30 and 50 feet. And so that was that was a fortunate situation for you, you're saying? Yes, well. because I was able to get... I was free of the ship. But I will tell you this much. The, the helicopter, when it... I got to the ground first. The helicopter hit the ground and... St- and I can't, re- it could have been five feet, could have been 20 feet, I don't know. But it, this big grayish blob was coming at me and it stopped. And then I got up, I guess I must have looked at the helicopter and I walked up to McCarley who was sitting there because he had hit the bulkhead and he had lost 14 teeth, root, root and all. Blood was just running down his mouth. And I said, you know, sir, we got to get back on that helicopter because there's people in there. And he said, yeah, we do. And he told me years later, he says, you know, when I think about it, that's got to be the dumbest thing I ever did was to agree <laughs> willingly to go back into a burning helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's, you don't, you know, you can't leave your fellows in there. You can't. You got to try. Did you have your rucksack on when you were thrown? No, that, it, that was long gone. Oh, because okay. when it got emptied out, right? Yeah, okay. What day was this of the mission? Um, when all that mess was going yes, on? Yes, or with, with the helicopter. No, that was the, four, the 14th of September would be day four. The Okay, day four. So will you talk... Well, one other question I have then is, was there any hand-to-hand combat? No. Okay. Well, none that I'm aware of and none that I saw. Okay. But I can't tell you... With absolute certainty, there wasn't. Okay. I don't. I don't. With. I really. I really don't think so because the aviation assets pretty much kept them at bay. 
Okay. On day four, a battalion was charging us, and the Air Force came down, and right on top of them laid down uh, CS. CS right control like tear, it's this, tear gas? Well, it was developed for by the state police, police forces for riots here in the States. Okay. It's not poisonous. Uh, it just makes you feel like you can't see or breathe anymore. <laughs> Your brain doesn't think it's getting oxygen. I mean, it's horrible stuff. You probably it's had a, to do go through it for training. Oh, yeah, you go through it with a gas ring okay. and then in training exercise. It's the only cure for the common cold that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, it will literally clean out your sinuses. <laughs> will it help you lose weight? Uh, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, you probably aren't going to eat for a while because <laughs> no matter which, everything smells like that stuff. Really, uh, it's like getting skunk up in your sinuses. Uh-huh. Nothing. I'm not in the mood to eat with skunk in my. <laughs> if I'm smelling skunk. <laughs> well, what about you? Saw some really, I'm, I think, some horrible things over, over those four days. You treated a ton of people. You ran out of morphine. I think is that right? Yeah, in fact, I was doing. <laughs> I was, you know, the morphine syrettes. It's like a little tiny toothpaste with a needle on it. Well, you're supposed to give no more than half to one person. Well, I was giving. I would the, my walking wounded to keep them walking. I would give them like just enough to ease, dull the pain, but not completely eliminate it. But I would take one syrette and I would use it on four people right through their. Uniform, no alcohol swab, which my instructors back in medical school would probably be freaking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, sterility and cleanliness was not an issue. <laughs> we'll worry about that later with antibiotics, you know, because you, you, you can't carry enough, you know. So you, you use, you, you improvise sometimes. You, you, you do things that are under regular normal circumstances you wouldn't do. You have to in order to, like sometimes if somebody's bleeding and you got to stop a bleeder, you may have to reach in with your dirty finger to pull something so you can get a hemostat on it or something. Now, you had some help from, from nature, right, with, yeah, with maggots. Yeah, I did. I had, I, that was not deliberately my doing, but Mother <laughs> Nature came to my aid. That was the second medic. Well, I did have Cooch. Cooch was a, a mountain yard medic, and he helped me a lot. Okay. Uh, but yes, most of my badly wounded had, uh, maggots in their wounds when we got back to 74th of back. In fact, one of the doctors opened up the wound on one of my mountain yards and he looked at it and he saw the maggots and he just put the bandage back on and said, they're, they'll do a better job than I can to breeding that <laughs> wow. one. Wow. And I really think the reason that several of those men did not die was because the maggots had eaten all the dead flesh. And so therefore they didn't get an infection. Because in that environment, you in three days, you know, you could get really a serious infection, and two days later, you could be gone. It when you consider the well, the severity of the wound and everything else. So, what about Sergeant Stevens? I believe is his name, and he was shot through the neck, through and through. Is yeah, that George Stevens? George Stevens. Tell we explain what how you treated him and his situation. Well, I got up. The, on the fourth helicopter, because the first helicopter, the yards panicked. And this is if you don't believe in God, I'm telling you there is a God, because there were so many troops wounded, all my wounded, 
all my wounded and a lot more troops were on that helicopter. According to what the Marine Corps said, that that helicopter with all those people should not have been able to get off the ground. It did. And helicopters do not fly well in uh, hot air. They love Alaska. So the second one had a little more. And the third one, which was ours, they had committed fourth. And it was a good thing we, by the third one, there were only 35 of us left on the ground. So I get on first Sergeant Adair and McCarley, like they say, was the last man to step from the battlefield. He received a silver star for that action. So I get up there and McCarley and Adair go further into the helicopter. We had lost, he had lost an engine going in and pulling up. He had gotten lost another engine hydraulics were going and fuel was hydraulic fluid was going everywhere we got to 4500 feet and the reason we know that is because he was talking to covey the pilot was and he said i'm at 4500 feet no engines no hydraulics i'm going we're going down uh and he was talking like he was ordering pizza from the dominoes he was so calm i mean you can't do and i was sitting at the back because the ramp was still down because there's no hydraulics, so therefore you can't get the ramp up. So Bernie Bright and I were sitting there arm in arm, and we'd look, we were looking out of the back, and the thing would dip down. You'd see green, and it would come back up and see blue. And one of us said, we're going to crash, and the other one said, and we still don't know which one said which. Yeah, I know. We're going to crash. And the next thing I know, I get tapped on the shoulder, and there was this the Marine Corps person who was controlling this operation, had a headset on. Now, this guy looked like he was getting ready for a recruiting poster for the United States yeah. Marine Corps. Starch fatigues. I mean, he looked like he was going to a dress parade, right? Spit shine boots. <laughs> we look like we've been shot at and hit and shit at uh -huh. and hit. I mean, and so he said, I got wounded back here. And so I got up, went back there, and by then I had nothing left. But he had taken a 12.5, which is equivalent to a 50 caliber, whew, through the neck, uh -huh. and it did not hit anything vital. That's another reason why I say there is a God. You don't get, I mean, it's, what, 50 calories, about the size of my thumb, I think. He, I got him up on all fours because I was afraid he was going to drown on his own blood. So I got him, so he was breathing. And he was going into shock. So I remember reaching down with my head and saying, listen, you stupid son of a bitch. If you were going to die, you'd already be dead. And he came out of shit. Because in training, they said sometimes if, if you're having trouble with somebody going into shock, one method to get them going out of shock is make them pissed at you. Oh, really? Huh. If you get somebody angry, they won't go into shock. And he apparently was pissed because, uh, well, probably because I called an MF, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I was Army and he was a Marine Corps. Well, the next thing I knew, we were flying through the air. In fact, if you could look, you can see that one crease on my eyebrow when I kind of. Uh-huh. I caught my eye socket on the front side of that 50, and it drug it. So I was 
didn't hurt my eye, thank God. But anyway, and so the next thing I know, I'm on the ground. I presumed the man was dead. I mean, you don't get a wound like that mm-hmm. and then fall 4,500 feet in a, in a helicopter. And I, I'm, I know I'm probably not supposed to be looking at you, but there's a no, third, that's okay. third right. person. Yeah. There's a third person in the room. That's right. We acknowledge you, Troy. Hi, <laughs> Troy. And so um, I just assumed he was dead. So in uh, 1996, yeah, 96 or 95, I can't remember, I was at the SF convention with all the guys from Tailwind at uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And we were talking about it, you know. We are just kind of reminiscing about it because by then we'd found out it was unclassified or they had declassified a lot of it. So... I said, you know, I just thought we'd lost him. I, I always figured he was dead. And McCarley said, Mike, no. About 1992, I, I ran into him up in, uh, I was up there at uh, Marine Corps base doing, I don't remember what the colonel was doing up there. but And he said, I ran into him, George Stevenson. And uh, he he said he had two scars under each ear, about the size of a a, a, a fifty cent piece silver dollar or something like that. Other than that, he was seemed perfectly well to me, and I thought, "Wow, it's amazing." So, one of the things that I'm very pleased with myself over, and it's and I'll explain that why I was notified to get the medal. So I asked the people at the PA office at DC uh, for the Department of the Army, if he, they could find George Stevens, and I'd like him at the uh, medal ceremony. Well, a couple of days later, the colonel came to me and says, "She said, uh, Captain Rose, um, we found Mr. Stevens, he, but he's he's passed away in twenty, and he's buried in Florida." <clears throat> so she showed me a photograph of his tombstone. And, you know, when you look at a photograph, you don't, you know, you see a name and that's about all you see. And she said, but look at the date of his death, 2012. He lived a long time. He lived 42 years after that. Mm. And she said, and you do know that he got out, was married, had three kids, and he's got, I think he had like several, several, more than two or three grandchildren. And I'm thinking... When I heard that, I said, and I still think remember it is as clear as it is right now as I'm looking at you. You know, I did something one day for what five minutes that had a major impact on one person's life, and he, because of that, didn't die and lived another forty-two years and was able to have a a family, mm. and he's got children and grandchildren. And I thought, that's kind of cool. It's because you called him an SOB and he woke up. <laughs> yeah, insult the man, right? <laughs> you insulted him. Wow, yeah. yeah that, that. When he fell 4,500 feet, did he land in trees? I mean, how do you... What? I, don't, I don't know where he was, mm. but apparently he didn't die because we both went out over that 50 cal because the pilot said there, he saw two of us being, two people being ejected. And I know one of them was me, and and I gotta believe the other one was him. Mm. But I never saw or heard from him again. 
And when we were ejected, we were probably, well, one pilot estimates somewhere between 35 and 50 feet. Mm. But it, we hit, the pilot had found a like a beach-like thing on the on the A River. Don't ask me what what river. And uh, he put it in there, auto rotated in there as best he could, and and we were, and it definitely was, because I know we were getting out of the helicopter, but we were getting out of openings in the helicopter, and I don't think they were doors. Wow. And and of course the thing was smoking and on fire, so. Mm-hmm. And a funny thing is, McCarley told me later, years later, he said, "You know, when I got out, how it, he didn't, he does not remember getting out, because he was out by the time I got to the ship." But he said, "I got out, and we think the first sergeant was thrown out through the tail, <laughs> and he was standing in about waist deep in water in this river, or lake, or or whatever it was, the river, I guess it was." And uh, <laughs> McCarley said, "At the time, I was thinking, why is the first sergeant going swimming?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and both Adair and McCarley's had had their bell ring when we, you know, when they hit the ground. Especially mm-hmm. him. I mean, fourteen teeth extracted within a matter of seconds, yeah. root and all. Jeez. That had to hurt. Yeah. Oh yeah. I know. The next day, his mouth was like, oh man, mm. he was definitely on pain pills. Trust me. Yes. Well, how did y'all finally get out of there? Well, the fourth helicopter was didn't have anybody on it, and they backed up against the riverbank, and we were able to get out. The some of the the one of the pilots got out, and he helped organize uh, a perimeter. Like, what good was it going to do? And we had uh, cobras completely circling us at the time, just shooting into the jungle with. Uh, 40 millimeter and um, I don't know what I guess what 30 caliber maybe hmm. I don't know I, I don't remember what the armament on a on a Marine Corps I know it wasn't 20 millimeter but so uh, they did have 40 millimeters so that pretty much kept them at bay he got in we got on and he pulled off and we went back to our launch site offloaded got the wounded evacuated to hospitals. And it was funny, we're standing there, right? We started taking rounds from up on the hill from the bad guys. And then the Arban 155 unit, which was next to our little compound there on the runway, started returning fire. And we had a fully loaded Cobra sitting there, and it took a direct hit. And I'm sitting there, watching this, standing up, probably maybe 60, 70 feet away, fully armed, full of fuel. Like, And then afterwards I thought, God, that wasn't the brightest thing I'd done that day. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then the guy, some of the guys were jumping into a bunker we had there. Well, you know that the clown car thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there were so many of them jammed into that bunker <laughs> that we had to help them extricate out because they couldn't get <laughs> 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 were almost, I would have gone crazy. With what, too many sardines in that can, you know? Yeah. But it, it's amazing what panic and, you know, and uh, hysteria. You know, I mean, the whole day was just, it started off bad and it just continued all the way to the end. Yeah, dude. Mm-hmm. And I remember flying back with a mountain yard 
and uh, Adair back to Doc Contum. And I looked at Adair and I said, you know, if this thing crashes, I'm walking back. <laughs> I mean, I'd had enough of helicopters. Uh-huh. Well, you're down and, and it's funny. I had that was that was the last of the helicopters, right? That I was in. I was in a fixed wing and I think four or five helicopters that went down. The other four didn't go down because of of uh, enemy fire. There was I don't know, maintenance issues. Like one time we were on the runway and uh, we only got about maybe eight feet off the ground and it pancaked back in and the, and the skids, you know, folded up. We were rocking and the rotors just digging into the dirt. And I hear on the headset said, when I tell you to run, just run. Pick a direction and just run. Because, <laughs> you know, the thing might explode. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that was one of them. And so after a while, you know how guys pick up on little things and they said they go to get on a helicopter and they said, Hey, is uh is Rose going? <laughs> <laughs> and to this day I will not get on another helicopter. Not happening. Yeah, so have you the not- only way you're getting me on a helicopter is you're gonna have to knock me out. <laughs> any any more I mean I know I'm kind of rattling, but no. You know, when you think about when you look back on that that mission, first of all, how much longer were you? What happened after that? You went? Did you did you go back home soon, or did you stay in country for a while? Or no, that was September. I didn't leave till the following April. Well, I mean, was it still? Did you get in some other? I was on another mission, but uh, I I went. I the next day we all got up. I mean, I went to the. I went and got a shower. It's funny. I went to get a shower. Uh, they have that famous photograph of me getting off the chair with two beers in my hand, my <laughs> uniform torn off. When I got to doctoral on site, I was just coated in blood. So the guys thought it was, might be mine. So they were pulled. That's why the shirt's torn and uh, so much. And uh, it's one of those deals where... Uh, you know, they put their hands in places I never wanted anybody looking. You know how that's that's what you do is you take your hands and you you start doing this on somebody uh-huh. in a combat situation to see if where they're bleeding. Well, most none hardly. Well, there was some of that was my blood, but not very much because uh, I did take a round in the foot, but I didn't deal with that until I got back to Contoon. It was a hole about the size of my thumb, about three quarters of the way through. Oh, so so it was still there. The bullet was still there. It was no, it was a rocket fragment. Frag. Oh, okay. So, um, going back to what I was saying, so I got off the helicopter, went and got a shower. But what the funny thing was, I took my uniform outside of my huge throw it in a pile. I go and take a shower, and I'm telling you, I was filthy, 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 and. Um, it took me a while for the soap even to soap up. So I come back wrapped in a towel and flip-flops, right? And I get to my hooch, and that uniform is there. It smelled so bad, I had to get a stick. <laughs> God, oh. There's a book about the 17th Airborne when they brought him back from uh, fighting at the Battle of the uh, Bulge, right? Because they trucked him up. They didn't jump into it. Well, when they brought the seven, they'd been in, you know, they hadn't, these guys hadn't bathed for three months, right? 
So they bring them back to a refit, retrain area. And one of the first things they did was they had to get them. They, they said they smelt so bad that you could smell them miles off. So the engineers dug this big trench, right? And this is 1944, right? And it's in the, the book uh, about the 17th Airborne. And, they, and as they came, they took everything off, threw their uniforms in, right? Boots and everything. And then put picked up their web gear and their rifles. <laughs> and you have this mental image about, I don't know how many is left, maybe let's say 9,000 guys, bare ass, you know what, with web gear on and a rifle, going to a shower point to get a shower in a new uniform. <laughs> That's about what it looked like. Because you can look, I remember the, our whole shower area was full of uh, mountain yards and us trying to get really? clean. I guess a lot of red water. Yeah, there and, was some red water, but it was filth. You know, just mm -hmm. well, you know, the jungle is not exactly um, a clean place to be. Well, did you find any parasites on you or ticks? I don't know what they have. All of it have. I got a, I got a case of worms that I had trouble with. Gave me a lot of problems for several years. Uh, in '74, I got tired of it. I had been to Walter Reed and whatever, and so. I went down to a local doctor, which in the military you're not supposed to, because I just, and they did a stool thingy, and they found worms, parasite, and the particular kind of parasite. This is four years later. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So they give me this, uh, well, I don't, I picked this thing up in Vietnam, but mm -hmm. where, oh, okay. I don't okay. I have no idea. So, and, the, and so he said, well, you're lucky, because they just came out with a treatment for this particular parasite about a month and a half earlier wow. and this is 1974 and they were three dollars a pill and i had to take 21 of them and when you're making what 500 a month it's a lot of money yeah so <clears throat> that was a that was a tomato soup month there for a while with my <laughs> wife and child you should have gone to the veterinarian and and gotten what he what he gives to the dogs <laughs> well you know you laugh i i took my dog in she looked right at it and said, that's Lyme's disease. Took the test and confirmed it. I won't say where or when, but this young this couple was taking their child into the minute for a month. It was sick as a dog. The kid was really sick. And finally, somebody realized it was Lyme disease after a month. I took my dog to a vet, and within 30 seconds, she died. I said, oh. you know, I was thinking maybe she should have taken the the kid to the veterinary. <laughs> I know. Well, there's an episode of Seinfeld about that. Do you did you ever watch Seinfeld? Uh no. Yeah, Kramer wouldn't go to the doctor. He he was going to a vet. He's like, look, the guy can cure a dog, a chicken, a frog in the same day. And so he was he took his dog, but he was telling the vet his own symptoms, <laughs> acting like it was the dogs, and so he's taking dog medicine. <laughs> yeah. I I will tell you, veterinarians are really smart people. Mm -hmm. so you have to be. Gotta be. I mean, do you realize? They can't talk to you. The animal can't talk to you. So yeah, you they're like, <clears throat> they're like a pediatrician. You know. Yeah. We used to call the vet in Vietnam when, when we had a kid that was sick and we couldn't figure out what it was. Uh huh. We'd call the veterinary. Hmm. And he'd say, "Well, you know," he'd ask us what we'd done, and he says, "You know, it sounds like this." I would try this and see if it works. Mm. Not give me a call back. Uh -huh. We'd try it and it'd work. So, yeah. Well, but, 
I mean, I, I, I can tell you that uh, the next day we got up, went to debriefing, had the rest of the afternoon, and then the next day, which would be the 16th, I got up, was back in the dispensary by 7.15, cold and sick call for the troops and the locals. And I did that off and on. See, they wouldn't let me go back to the field. That's why. Because at first it was put in for the Medal of Honor and then it finally got downgraded and all that. You know, so they, so they left me. So I stayed and I went on one last operation, a border watch. That was, that was it. We didn't run into much on that one, but it was long, hard, and dirt. Six weeks, dirty. Really? When he got back. That's, we literally had uniforms start to dissipate because you're, you know, you're sweat and the jungle and the mold and everything. Yeah. When I got back from Vietnam, the, we used stable rigs, right? It's so you could, and you had these clips. That way you could reach behind and clip into your waist. And then you had these hooks. So if they had to pull you out on strings, mm-hmm. right? Well, where, where your web would put, where your uh, stabilizer put a lot of pressure on your uh, body, uh, there's mold, whatever. It would literally stain. You could see this portions of where the web gear was on your skin. Yeah, it took about a couple months after I got out of Vietnam to before that to dissipate. But so when you were in, when, when th- those four days, did you ever have time to think? about anything other than the task at hand and if you did what did you think of well you know think about this you you got the task at hand and by the end of the first day you're you're already reached the point of exhaustion and you're going to be exhausted hungry and tired and whatever the water we were drinking by then in fact that bladder probably saved my life at one point because i uh I don't remember if it was a mortar or a rocket, but it hit, and something hit me dead in on the chest. I could feel it hit me, but there was enough water in that bladder to, like, hitting a pillow, right? Punching a pillow. Mm-hmm. And at first I thought, oh, and it's warm, right? So you feel this wet, and you're going, oh, man. And then I reached, no, nothing's red, and I realized it was just the water from my bladder. <laughs> So that's why there's no picture of me with a bladder on my chest because, you know, with a hole in it, it was useless. So yeah. we were drinking from the canteens. And then when you go through the streams, the first guy going through probably had some pretty decent water. But after that, you just put in your. And then that's the two things in Vietnam that really, really creeped me out were the land leeches and the water leeches. Uh, I mean, I get. Well, just thinking about it, fifty years later, I get chills. How big were they? The biggest land, uh, water leech I ever saw was a, probably about as long as my thumb, a little maybe big as, maybe not quite as diameter my little finger. Mm-hmm. But the um, the land leeches look like uh, inchworms, and when you take a break and you'd sit down and you had the feeling like the jungle was coming at you it literally was because i guess somebody says they pick up on your uh the carbon dioxide uh-huh something like mosquitoes do or something i've been told so and then we were so <laughs> we were so afraid of of uh, land leeches and water leeches 
getting in certain places. Mm -hmm. It's like that movie Stand By Me. You ever seen the movie Stand By Me? Yeah. Where he pulls the leech from in his underwear. Yeah, the bolt, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But we would, we had this leech repellent, right? And the only thing that can, you could, that, that stuff did not melt, as far as I know, was uh, the container in which it came in. <laughs> and we used to squirt that down the front of our pants, around our ankles, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and on the backside of your pants. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> you did not want to leech in no, those I'm places. No, I'm sure. <laughs> you know. My wife's sister was a missionary in the Philippines, and she got a, a, a tapeworm. And at some point later... Cause she started getting real sick when she was back home in the States. She passed that thing in a restaurant bathroom. And I don't know. I mean, she, she, it, it messed her up to this day, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, parasites can be pretty bad. I know in South America, there's a liver fluke that you do not, you do not pee in water. Because the liver fluke, by the time you get done, can come up the stream. Oh, I've heard of those. Dang. Yeah, so... That'd be painful. Yeah. There's a... You know, that's the other thing. Uh, Southeast Asia is an entomologist's dream. I mean, there's... If you don't believe in uh, life on other planets, look at some of those insects, and they'll convince you that thing's gotta be off world <laughs> you know you know it's gotta be an alien in nature <laughs> well, i'll tell you what this is my second uh, interview this week and my last one that i did the other night we were talking about pee also and how using using pee to toughen up the bottom of your feet to get ready for a long ruck i said how do you even do that physically but uh my dad said that and we did this with mortars we used to when they'd get too hot we used to pee on them which, pulls them all fast. Yeah, Faster? well, it's wait, well, relatively. I mean, you know, there's hot, and then there's hot. You know, you you don't want a a, a mortar tube at the base where uh, to be so hot it would cook off the. Mm-hmm. Hmm. <laughs> you know, so you would because uh, it's dangerous. It really is. So because. Uh, because the heat will start climbing up toward the muscle if you keep. So they guys used to pee on the mortar at the base of the mortar, and then my dad said in World World War II, in the early part of the war, they used those water jacketed cooled uh, thirty caliber machine guns. Uh-huh. Water drinking water was a premium, so they used to fill the bottle up that you used to turn upside down to put it in the water jacket. Mm-hmm. And oops, sorry. Uh, and uh, they would fill that up with urine too. You saying and use it to drink if they had to? They wouldn't drink or, it or to pour on the the mortar or what? No, to fill up the the water jacket on the uh-huh. on the thirty caliber. Oh, okay. <laughs> Resourceful folks. Well, <laughs> when water drinking water becomes a premium, you know, uh-huh. and the water we were drinking toward the last couple of days had a lot of used to dump nothing supposedly lives. But there's nothing like a great tasting glass of water that's brown in color and full of iodine. Yum. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't had to do that. And then you 
you drink some of that stuff and you spit the solids out, right? And you hope they're not moving on their own. <laughs> yes, I bet. Yeah. Well, Mr. Rose, what about the Medal of Honor? You, When did you find out that... Okay, I guess early on, shortly after that mission, you, you heard you were being considered for or put in for, but when did you find out this was more of a reality? Well, it... It got downgraded to a, a DSC, you know, had that for 47 years. And then the guys had always been trying for 20 years to push this. And so finally got through, and I got a call. Well, I got a call from Neil Thorne telling me that my name and Jim McCoolin, who was uh, also to receive the Medal of Honor, were on the same line on the 27. National Defense Authorization Act, which eliminated the time limit. Once that was done, then all you were just waiting for a call from the White House. And, and I got a call from President Trump. Called me on the phone at the house. My wife said, as soon as you found out it was, because they call you, they don't tell you who's calling you. They just say a person's going to call you. Well, it's the president. And, and you hear this. Mr. Rose, yes, please hold. Somebody from the uh, White House needs to speak to you. <laughs> and then uh, then you hear this voice. That, uh, Mr. Rose, uh, hold the line. Uh, the President of the United States would like to talk to you for a moment or two. So I get the phone, and it's President Trump. And Margaret said, my wife said, as soon as I found out it was the President of the United States, she said it was, she started laughing. Because she said, she's looking at me, because I came to attention. My fingers cold like that. The thumbs went down at the seams of my pants. And and all I could say is, yes, sir, no, sir. And I'm thinking, <laughs> the man must have thought I was a complete idiot. You know? <laughs> you know? But that's how I got that call in early August. Early August. Then, 2017. And then you were awarded it in October. Oh, okay. Yeah, not long later. Okay, what what was the the whole? How long were you in D.C.? What was the whole ceremony and the, <clears throat> well, the circumstance they, like? It used to be you just showed up at the White House, and in some cases, you know, the first Medal of Honor from Vietnam was not given by the president; it was given by a general because they didn't want the notoriety at the time because of the issue of combat and all that nonsense. But now you just don't show up. The first thing happens is they come they, the the PAO the public affairs office from the Department of the Army comes to your house and you do all these radio and TV interviews at your house, right? Then you spend a week training session with how to mainly how to deal with the press, how to you know talk to the press so you don't look like a complete you know southern part of a horse facing north yeah so um and then after that you go to dc and then you're there the one day and then they you go through this another with the chief of protocol for the pao office about this you know and they go then they run you all the way through what's going to happen well one and then on what is that that's thursday because you arrive wednesday thursday you go through all that. And then on Friday, you start with these interviews. And it's, you're in the press room, I think, 
It's the same room where the uh, the uh, at the Pentagon where the the public affairs office or for the Pentagon. It's do, in the it's yeah, in do their briefing the press briefings. Yeah, it's the same room, I believe. Okay, cool. So you get asked all these questions, and they talk to the press for about probably about forty minutes, forty five minutes. But Cap McCarley and I did that together, and then. Uh, then you have some social functions that you go to on Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. And on Friday uh, afternoon, you get paraded through the Pentagon. Let me show you how swift this guy is, how smart I am. I'd go to the Pentagon every day, right? And I'd come back, and my room key wouldn't work. So I'd get a room key. So, and you, you go back and forth during the day. And so by the end of the beginning of the second day we were there, I'd come in and the clerk at the, the desk already had my room key. <laughs> come to find out, every time I went through security, deactivated it. it deactivated my room key. And it took me like two days, three days to figure that out. <laughs> what was going on? No, I wouldn't have thought of that. I never. I said I can't. I couldn't believe what I was doing. You know, you know what was I doing? That was, you know, <laughs> you know maybe the last X-ray I had was. Maybe they turned the dial up too high or something. But it was kind of funny. And the other thing too, I didn't know is you were supposed to wear this badge all the time. Well, you have an escort with you. The whole time. I mean, from the t they pick you up in the morning downstairs from your hotel. And the escort actually has a room on the same floor as you do. Hmm. It's a sergeant first class or whatever. I don't know. Whatever they assign. So, so first time I was there, uh, I had to go to the bathroom, right? So I start head. Oh, wait a minute. You can't go back. You know, so this is here. And he reached in. He, I didn't realize that he'd been carrying his badge, you know, because I'd come through in the front door and they just waved me through like, well, they knew who I was because uh -huh. your photograph is all over the Pentagon. Hmm. They got posters in every hallway, you know, and they do that for every Medal of Honor recipient. And then they're there for a week. And then what you don't know is they police all this stuff up, right? And they ship it to you. So we, we go up to visit uh, our family in Michigan. And I come back and my neighbor says, well, I, he said, Jeff said, I've got your painting. He assumed it was a painting because it was a crate. And it was, it was about maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe nine inches width-wise. But it's about the size of this desk. About a little taller lengthwise desk huge huge <laughs> and i looked at margaret and i said what the did you order what did you i didn't order anything did you ordered and he so i mean it took two men and a boy to get it in our house mm -hmm. so we unpackaged it and it's all of that <laughs> so i have a friend that works at the uh, veterans museum here in huntsville and i called him up and said would you like this stuff and he says, what is it? And I explained. They wanted it for two reasons. One, it was about me, Medal of Honor. But it also had providence in the fact that this stuff had been in the Pentagon. So Okay. Mm. You So you didn't have to stick it in your attic or all over no. your house? In fact, I am 
I'm working on giving stuff away. I get I get so much. I, in fact, when I go to speak or something anymore, I ask him, please, no trophies, no, <laughs> you know, you want it, uh, uh, a, a little certificate or a letter of thank yeah. you, fine, yeah. but no, please. When I became Alabama Veteran of the Year for 2018, the, the actual trophy is about this big. It looks like the Stanley <laughs> Cup. And they've got, like, uh, apparently they got rings, just like to the. And there's names on there like Limburg and, you know, and all this stuff, mm. Schwarzkopf and Colin Powell. <laughs> so, but they give you mini version of it tailored to you and it's a with the eagle on top of the globe and whatever it's about 24 inches and it's it takes up a space about this oh i'd say maybe the size of a 14 inch pizza yeah my wife used to refer to it as the oscar <laughs> so we called up the george carlin middle of honor education center in chattanooga yeah and i said i have all this stuff uh because we had oh uh, all kinds of neat stuff by then. I mean, it was, stuff was coming in daily, you know. So the curator came to the house in Huntsville from there, from Chattanooga, and she took that globe. I really think that Margaret, my wife, because she kept moving it, trying to find a place. She, I think if she, if they wouldn't come and get it, she would have put it in the car <laughs> and driven it herself. She wanted that thing out of the house. She referred to it as my Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but I live in a 2,100 square foot house, right? I got a finite number of wall space. And she said, we are not turning in this to a shrine to Mike Rowe. <laughs> you know? well, come on now. Well, we get back from the Medal of Honor Society. And the first thing she says to me about a day later, she, says, she hands me a bag and says, there's poop in the backyard, hero. Go pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> so you know where. You brought back. Down. How impressed she is, you yeah. know. <laughs> Well, I, I'm going to add something. This is small. I don't. I'm going to make sure I look at the right camera. But um, go to camera one, so you can camera one. Okay. There you go. So for those that are, you want me to zoom in on it? Uh, yeah. Why not? Um, those who have, I gave, I've given a few of these away. Troy, you've got one. I gave you one on your podcast. But this is a coin that um, has my brother on it. It's got a retired call sign. And you want me to zoom uh, switch here? Uh, oh no, that there one. And then on the back, it's got the two types of aircraft that were overhead him when he was killed. And he was he was talking to an Apache, an AH-64, and a um, F-18. I'm sorry Hornet. about your loss. Well, I appreciate that. And this is the Silver Star. So I wanted to give this to you. Yeah, thank you. You know, I have one of my coins that I have for you, gentlemen. I think down in my car, so and I neglected to bring it in. That's okay. Um, Mr. Rose, is there anything else that you'd like to say about about your time serving or about about that mission, about the Medal of Honor, or something that maybe you've never talked about because nobody's ever asked you that you've wanted to say? No, I, to be honest with you, I think I've been asked about every possible question you could possibly be asked. In fact, one of the f most interesting questions I've ever asked, uh, it really stopped me in my tracks was by a fifth grader. We were at uh, an elementary school in Annapolis. Um, Thacker, another Medal of Honor recipient, and I were doing questions and answers with the school. And so we were going through, and the kids had a microphone. They could ask questions, and we could 
you know, would, would answer them. So, so the principal said, we have one more time for one more question. So they gave the microphone to this young fifth grader, young boy. And he looks at Thacker and I, and he starts off. He says, you know, I have an ancestor that fought in the Vietnam War, <laughs> you know. And uh, I had never been equated to an ancestor before, you know. And so it, Thacker and I looked at each other and says, uh, gee, you know, I guess we are getting old. Long in the tooth, as they say. Uh, no, I, I'm pretty much been asked most every questions, but one of the things I always like to impart to when I when I do a podcast or an interview is, is talk about a couple things. And one of them is, you know, we have a suicide issue, not only in the military, but in civilian life. And and I don't know what the solution is. I've talked to I even talked to General McConnell at one time and he said that Part of the problem is every individual is an individual, and no two. There's no common thread. What'll affect one person won't affect others. So, one of the things I tell people: if you if you think you have somebody that you know or love, or a good friend that possibly may be having some mental issues, and it, and the thought of suicide may enter your mind, force him make an issue out of it uh, for him or her to get help and. And, there, and I said, it's better to do that and then they do something and you did nothing. Or it's better to that and find out that that really isn't an issue, the suicide issue. But, uh, and even if you lose a good friend for the rest of your life, it's better to do that than to yes. err on the side of caution. So uh, that's one thing. And the other thing, too, is the wars have taken a toll. And we always think of the, the soldiers that didn't come home and the soldiers that come home injured, both in mind and body. But one of the things that I want to point out, too, is, is when you lose a, a family member or somebody that you love, uh, when you think about those soldiers at Veterans Day, Memorial Day, whatever, sailors, airmen, Coast Guard guys, the one thing you should remember that, you know, there's families and friends attached to those people, and it leaves a hole. With time, uh, I think they, I don't, I can't say it gets better, but I, I think you, you tolerate it. If that, I, I, I don't know what the word is, but you, you seem to be able to easily get through the day a lot better than when it first happens. And there's nothing more sad than when you talk about a mother who has lost this child in combat or a brother or a parents or as bad as that is, I can tell you talking to some of the parents that have lost one who is now determined to be missing in action. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they go to their grave not knowing how their child died or whether their child was suffered or what. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a nightmare for the parents. It's a nightmare for the family. So it's just not the loss of that person, the service member. It's also, it, it, it's a tsunami of discomfort and pain that r runs right through family and friends. 
when my uh, son-in-law uh, passed, and I, it was PTSD. Uh, my wife's best friend the next day lost her husband, and in spite of all of her discomfort after losing a husband of fifty years, uh, she was calling Margaret every day to make sure Margaret was okay because Betty was really worried about her friend Margaret, and so it's it's a it affects people right close to the situation and it affects uh, it people on the edge and what i what i would recommend that if you know somebody in that boat you know this thing about well i don't know what to say is a it's a cop out that's you know a friend is a friend and so you Sometimes it's just sitting on a bench with them or just saying, hey, let's go get a hamburger and a cup of coffee at McDonald's, calling them on the phone or or go to dinner with them periodically. Mm-hmm. Keep including them in your your festivities and your, you know, if, uh, you know, if you're running to Coles or something, you know, if you're going on a th- you know, afternoon fishing trip. It doesn't matter what it is. Mm-hmm. Make sure that the, those people that are are part of that pain get get some comfort. And it's and it applies not only to the military but to, to first responders, police officers, and firemen. And 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 in general, it applies to anybody who loses a, a, somebody close to them. If their parents. Give them a call, see how they're doing. Their their spouse, or if their children happens to be a friend of yours, keep in, stay in contact with them. Don't lose contact with them. Include them in your in your life. I'm not saying you have to bit see you know spend every night with them, but but periodically is it's a good thing to do. And I and I will tell you this much that in our in our grief over my son-in-law, one of the things that we found that's really helped was when we found out that, and it come to a realization after that, getting involved in helping others helps you heal too. So Definitely. I imagine your daughter, and she doesn't want her husband to be forgotten. No. No one wants their loved one to be forgotten. The, what I call the dustbin of history... Uh, in fact, I'm on a, a board with uh, honor and remember and honor and sacrifice. And we, we remember any uh, person that has served and died for whatever reason on active duty uh, since April of 1775. In fact, uh, two years ago, three years ago now, we actually honored uh, two young men. That one, one was killed in action in uh, in the Navy, I believe, in March of 1942, and the other one died, unfortunately, in April, first first of April, 1945, what, eight days after the war in Europe ended. So uh, there are organizations that keep people's names alive. Mm-hmm. And if you live here in Huntsville area, buy a paver, put their, uh, their name and their service and their whatever information that affords the number of lines and characters and have a paper put in on the, on the veterans memorial. That's a great idea. It helps support the memorial, but it also, you walk over those bricks and you realize the numbers of people. 
And in fact, um, I've included and I bought a paver for my wife for her service when I was in. Uh, my friend, my best friend, John O'Brien, who died in 26, and Betty and I, we, in fact, we were just with her yesterday. That's what I'm talking about. Um, she she has her name, in, and then I, I have included one for my daughter because she lost her husband. Mm-hmm. And it says, you know, Marine Corps spouse or Army spouse mm-hmm. and the time frame in which they That's were. That's cool. That's a good reminder. Because uh, you think about it, <clears throat> Even though the soldier is going off and possibly deployed to, je- to something in jeopardy, um, it's the spouse or the parents or the, that stay there and make sure the kid's homework gets done, make sure they get to the dentist and the doctor and that they get enough sleep and they're eating and nobody's, a, mm-hmm. and they're being taken well care of for it. Because if you, that doesn't happen and you can't, you deploy a serviceman with the thoughts of worry. That doesn't bode well for things like accidents, among other things. And you don't need accidents in a combat zone. There's mm-hmm. enough that can go wrong, trust me. So that's the one thing about that that I, I, I need to feel that it needs to be enforced. Or Certainly. made, highlight, not enforced, but highlighted. Okay. That it's just not the person who died. 100% agree. That's right. I'm going to put a link to some of those things that you referenced, the Veterans uh, Suicide Hotline and and even some local things in, here in Huntsville. I'll put notes in the or links in the show notes of this podcast too so people can easily find those while that while they're, while they're listening, they can click on it. Well, I I just uh I'd like to thank the two of you for allowing me to do this and uh although I I think back at what we talked about over the what last almost two hours that sorry for the nonsense it's what makes maybe it it may not be very coherent and and one of the things too is when people listen to me speak to show you an example is when i talk about my experience and sometimes over time it changes and the reason for it is because i learn more and here's an example when we were about to be overrun, uh, one of the pilots came in at 45 feet. I know he was close because when he turned his head, he was flying an A1E Sky Raider, propeller, der- best aircraft the Air-, Air Force ever had, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, he turned his head to me. I couldn't quite read his name, but his name was Stump, but I could make out the, I could see the writing on his helmet. Uh-huh. That's so when uh he made a gun run and he was slightly off but i think he was more adjusting on to maybe so his bullets were hitting where they counted well we were getting hit with the shells and you know 50 caliber shells are huge and if they're coming in at what three four hundred miles an hour plus gravity whatever they could hurt that could be an owie but one of the things that i saw was that i thought tom was taking hits and i thought that for 30 some years until i had a conversation with several of the a1e pilots that said oh no no that he wasn't taking hits what it is is when the the rounds are fired from the 50 caliber the way it's 
the exp the expended cartridges is discharged from the aircraft. What happens? The prop wash catches them and puts them back up and sends them down Porsche of the fuselage. Oh. What I thought was him taking rounds was those fifty caliber cartridges or uh -huh. or brass were shadowing the fuselage. Uh -huh. So what it was, I was looking at shadows thinking I was looking at holes. Hmm. So somebody said, well, that's not what you said last time. Well, as I speak to more and more people, like about aircraft and how they operate and what they, I realized that some of my beliefs at the time mm -hmm. were wrong because I was going on what I was thinking or seeing or hearing. And so... That's why sometimes when you talk on these podcasts, that you, if you see a couple of years apart, yeah, that the person is now saying something slightly different because they're they're learning, the facts are getting clearer, or they're finding out things that like the the fuselage thing. So yeah, yeah, that's going to happen when you when you do a lot of interviews. There's going to be some variability because you 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 figure out some things and, and learn things different, and then. And then what you recall, I know you've talked about this before, but what you recall that happened on the ground those four days and someone else can be very, very different. And it's hard to know, you know, what really happened in some cases, right? Well, they, they talk about the fog of war, which is true. But the thing, too, is if you're concentrating on trying to stop a bleeder and something's going on and you just have to look up at the time and then whatever that was that you looked at, becomes a discussion and you say well i saw that but i thought it was like this they mm -hmm. said no no yeah. you know it's you, the perspective from a different angle right you know how much did you really pay attention to it was he wearing a dark green or a dark blue tie you know <laughs> i don't remember <laughs> so anyway uh that's why i just want to say that that sometimes you sure you learn things uh, or facts become clearer, or and yeah, you know absolutely. if you look at archaeologists are constantly up revising what they think is the truth about something that happened six thousand years ago. Yeah. Well, Troy, you got anything? No, I, I don't. It's just been a pleasure to meet you and hear from you. Well, I so. hope I didn't sound like I was uh, rattling. To me, I always on these podcasts think I'm rattling. No, that's but the whole rambling. Point. Yeah, we don't we don't want some structure. It doesn't have to be real structured. So I like that. You just let it fly and yeah. um, and for the listeners, please go to the podcast and rate it. Spotify and um, Apple, you can easily do that. Um, I'll, Mister Rose, you're you're not easy to find. I'm guessing if people wanted to to find anything out about you, they search your name, or is that? Oh, I'm, I got I got my. I don't know who created it, but I have my own Wikipedia page. Okay, I'll, okay, I'll put a link. There. I mean, you're definitely easy to find information about. But as far as if somebody, you know, wanted to send you a letter or an email or something, you don't really do that. Well, you can. Uh, you can. I get a lot of stuff from people from the uh, through the Medal of Honor Society. A lot of people send. Uh, address it and care of the Medal of Honor Society. And what they do is they package it up and send it to me. Okay. And there, there's a reason for it. When when we first got the medal, uh, Margaret was looking at something, and they had a photograph online of my front door with my phone number, everything. Yeah. 
And she did not like the idea of the phone number being out. And I know, you know, no matter how you try, they're going to get out there. Mm -hmm. And if somebody really, really, really wants to find you, they're going to find you. Yep. I mean, yeah, you said it was hard, but you didn't, didn't, you did find me. I found you. In fact, I know your, your neighbor and I had talked to her and I even got almost this crazy. Mike, you, you're going to, this, I was like, I'm not going to be that crazy, but I almost did. I was like, I think I'm going to see if she would just go ahead and either give me his address or I'll write a letter to her and she give it to him. And finally, I was like, Thad, just chill out. We'll, I, we'll figure this out. I at get some that. Point. And <laughs> yeah, and, uh, well, that, the school on Montano uh, is a homeschool group, and I've been doing, like I think I said this earlier in the podcast, uh, veterans, one of the days, you know, in the morning I come up there mm -hmm. and I talk to the kids. Amber. Amber, your neighbor, yeah. No, it's yeah. not my neighbor. It's my daughter's your neighbor. Da that's what it is, yes. Yeah, can't, it's can't my daughter's that. that's it. neighbor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, she's, I'll tell you, she's really handy with the gardening stuff. <laughs> Anyway, that's, yeah, she's a nice lady, very nice lady. Well, thank you for coming and coming here. And, and Troy, thank you for having us in your studio. You're welcome. Uh, Our Town Podcast once again. And thank you for wearing the Medal of Honor today. That's, that's, it's great to see. And uh, definitely want to get a picture with you. But I think that's, go ahead. I was going to say a reference to this Medal of Honor. Um, I wear this. It's, it doesn't belong to me. I'm just a caretaker. And I can tell you that uh, there are a lot of far braver men than I, better men than I, have uh, served this country and got no recognition. So that's, I wear it for all those guys. And, and my fondest wish that is that not another American soldier, sailor, airman, Coast Guard person ever gets another award for combat. I, I, if you want to see a Medal of Honor, you got to go to a museum. Yeah. That would be my... If you ask me what I would like, if I had the power of God, that's what I would do. I would... Just, the wars are... Yeah. I don't see where they end well. No. Uh, somebody once said that there's a... Uh, movie about called Red Cliff. It's an interesting movie. It's about a war in China around 200 and something BC. And the initially what you would consider the uh, <clears throat> general who won the war, won the battle, whatever. Somebody says something and he said, no, there are no winners there. And then the pan, the camera pans over the wall of the, the castle they just took, right, or this fortification. And all the way to the horizon, all you see is dead. Dead bodies. Horses and men. And flags and broken weapons. And, and it's true. I, I think when it comes to a war, I guess the winner basically is defined as the one that loses the least. And that's not what I would consider a positive, what do you call it? <laughs> yeah. It's nothing to smile or laugh about, but but this these are always fun. It's been great. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. They are fun because I think they're fun because you sit here and it's like a couple of people have nothing else to do. <laughs> Sitting around a bar <laughs> drinking a beer. 
talking. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll end it there. Until yeah. next time, thank you. Yeah.